I would love it if you could open your Bibles to Acts 2 again. Um, that's on page 1597 in the Brown Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, do go grab one. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please do keep it. It's yours. You can take it home. That's absolutely fine. Um, I want to read to you from Acts 2. We're going to read this for the last time today. And as of next week, Jeremy's going to be doing um, a few Sundays in August. And um, we'll be uh, starting something new. And uh, look forward to hearing what he has to say. Um, so Acts chapter 2, page 1597. I also want to read to you from 2 Corinthians 2 which is page 1684. So maybe grab the bookmark and put it in there. We'll turn to that immediately. All right, let's read. Verse 42, right at the end, the last paragraph. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is... Luke describing the life, the community life of the earliest church in the book of Acts and the way that God, by the power of his spirit, had infused them with a dynamic and extraordinary expression of faith in him, of love towards one another. And we're particularly interested in that remark he makes towards the end, that day by day, as they were attending temple, Breaking bread in their homes, they were full of joy. And then it says that the Lord added to their number uh, those who were being saved. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians 2. Uh, This is probably one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, but it's Paul talking about his own experience of being a preacher. And uh, from verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God, who who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's a very vivid idea, isn't it? That wherever Paul went as a preacher in the early, in in the Roman world, in the Roman Empire, he says, wherever we go and we speak about Jesus, it's like the fragrance of Christ is wafting everywhere. And he says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Anyone, in other words, who is confronted with the reality of Jesus uh, reacts to him. They realize something's different about us as preachers, and there is some, we carry something unique into the world. It's a fragrance, an aroma, he says. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You have to make sense of what he's saying at the end. We're not peddlers of God's word. People who kind of uh, are interested in like salesmen, just gaining the best positive response from everyone. He says we're men of sincerity. And we recognize that 
This gospel message we have is a dividing message, a fragrance that people react to very differently. So here's what we're interested in this morning. I'm interested in this fact that this church we've been describing over recent weeks, that we aspire to become like, that we call out to God for power to become like, to be more and more filled with his presence, that the fruit of what happened in the early church's life, the result... The final thing Luke wants you to notice when he's describing it is he talks about growth. He talks about the multiplication of that community. Now, growth in the church of God is a wonderful thing. And it's wonderful for so many reasons, but I'll mention a couple to you. One of them, of course, is that the Lord Jesus has compassion for this world. The Bible says that God doesn't want, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we understand that at the heart of the Christian message is, is this notion of love, that God is a missionary God, that he is on the front foot moving towards us and sending Jesus to us. And therefore, there would be something very tragic, wouldn't there, about a world that is not being confronted with Jesus, that where people are not coming to know him, and churches that are stagnant or dying. There is nothing more tragic than that. We, we believe and expect and hope and pray for the good of the world that people will come in to know Christ, come in and join the family of, of God. And I think it's one aspect. It's the love of God, his compassion for people. Another reason why I think growth is a wonderful thing is because you have to understand that as the Bible teaches us God's plan through history, the whole purpose, the telos, the end, the culmination of everything is about the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there would be something very pitiful, wouldn't there, about a world in which there is just a few, a remnant interested in Jesus. And the book of Revelation that describes the end talks of a multitude that no one could count from every tribe, language, and tongue worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people would think that seems ridiculous, but you only have to look at the facts, don't you? You have to look at the facts that here Jesus left a very small group of people, and look at how it has multiplied into the billions, not only those alive today, but those who go before us, those who have died in the faith, those who have known Jesus, and the fact that this faith is multiplying and growing in the world at a phenomenal rate. Who could have guessed it? And so I think growth is a wonderful thing. But the thing that you have to notice, and which I want us to really think upon this morning, is this fact. That the Christians in this church had no control over the growth of their, their church. In fact, it wasn't growing initially. Initially, for weeks on end, there was just the same group of people huddled in a little room, hiding and praying, much as we were on Friday night. And just hoping that God would do something. And I think this is so important to say, see. Look, what he says here. That they were having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number. Day by day. Those who are being saved. This is the work of God. This is not man's ingenuity. This is the work of God. Now, the reason why I think this is such a phenomenally important reality. Is because we, we live in a slightly... Um, in an unusual moment in, in history in the Western world. For Christianity, don't we? A lot of people have noticed that the church, of, the church has been diminishing in the West. 
um, on a broad scale. Of course, there are exceptions to that. There are unique local churches and whole denominations that are growing, and that's a wonderful thing. But you take a broad brush approach, and you recognize that, that a world which was once dominated by the Christian faith, it seems to have been laid to rest, doesn't it, in one sense? It seems that a lot of churches are actually no longer growing. It seems that, broadly speaking, people are not interested in Jesus. And you and I experience this in day-to-day life. It's not like um, we go through our days experiencing um, just unhindered interest in the faith. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about Christianity. It seems to be quite the opposite, doesn't it? And in the light of this reality, people outside the church look in and will often remark, and you see this in the media and you hear this in conversation, they will often remark that what's needed above all in the church today, if it's to survive and potentially even to thrive, what's needed above all is that the church should adapt. The church needs to conform. The church needs to kind of, they say, listen, your, your message is, is outdated. It doesn't chime in any way with the times that we live in. It's offensive. Uh, people don't want to hear what you have to say. So if you were to just adjust it slightly, focus on, let's say, the positive parts and downplay all the kind of negative parts, then of course, the church might have a future if you were to adjust to the culture we're in. And that's what people on the outside, some people on the outside looking in say. Not everybody, of course. And of course, within the church, many of those who feel responsible, particularly church leaders and denominational leaders, their insecurity is obvious in this fact that they often feel that that's probably the right approach. Maybe if we were to adjust what we teach or what we believe and what we preach, uh, then potentially the church has a future. Or maybe, if it's not so much about the message, but about our kind of, what church looks like if we were to innovate, if we were to kind of bring things into the modern world, if we were to adjust things a little bit, a bit more pragmatic about stuff, then maybe the church has a future. And so you see all kinds of stuff going on. You see many churches, even in our neighborhood, um, that what they preach is, does not really resemble what's in this book. And you see churches where what they practice, the kind of ordinary rhythms of community life, don't particularly resemble what's in this book. There's much more emphasis on, on other things that they think will be attractive and appeal to people outside the church. And so this is the way I think things have been moving. And uh, I think it betrays this misunderstanding above all. Partly that... People don't understand that this is, you can put it this way, that the fact that the gospel is not always popular, the fact that the message we preach does not always gain wide acceptance, is a feature and not a bug. If it was a bug, it's something you have to fix, you have to alter and tinker and change. And maybe this is version 1.0, 1.1, in the early version of the book of Acts. And through the centuries, maybe we're on, you know, We're on version 7.9 or something like that. And if we keep tinkering, we can erase the bugs and improve it for the future ages and see this thing improve. That's how you view it. Some people view it that way. The offensiveness of the gospel is a bug. What they don't realize is that it's actually a feature. It's a feature you expect. You see it even in the pages of the book itself that there are moments when the gospel is flourishing, when the message is being widely accepted, and something extraordinary is happening. And many people are, are realizing that Jesus is the Lord and turning to him and coming and joining God's people. 
And then, even, even within a few short weeks or within years, even in the same location, you see the very opposite reaction. Where you see Paul traveling from place to place and gaining no hearing for the message that he has to say. Now, the Bible just tells us honestly. It's not, it's not trying to kind of paint things in, in the rose-colored spectacles of what was going on in the, in the life of the early church. It doesn't tell us that these men were extraordinary heroes who always gained wide acceptance and popularity. It tells us that Jesus himself was often rejected. It tells us that Paul, on occasion, was stoned for teaching people about Jesus. This is a feature and not a bug. And therefore you expect that the church will not always be experiencing growth, but sometimes will be experiencing the opposite. Now, I I want us to just think about this this morning. I think the heart of it is that the gospel message, I think, is a lot like Marmite. Yeah. Mm. Love that stuff, right? <laughs> um, some of you know, I don't, we, don't have a, we, don't, we don't have a TV license. I don't really see much advertising these days. But once upon a time, um, it may, they may still be running this campaign, but the Marmite adverts were always of very, very different reactions. People either just the Moorish feeling that you cannot get enough of the stuff or the absolute um, repulsion and offense at the flavor of this salty yeast extract. Who came up with the idea of extracting something from yeast and then spreading it on toast when it becomes a brown treacle? You know, it seems a bizarre thought, doesn't it? And someone thought that was a great idea. And so Marmite, for a while, had their slogan that you you love it or hate it. It's a very polarizing thing. And I think it was a brilliant idea because, of course, anyone who likes it suddenly thinks, yeah, I'm in that camp. I absolutely love it. And you want to fill your cupboards with the stuff and cannot get enough of it. And of course, I think the gospel is is very, very much like that. It has this binary impact. Some people despise what we're saying and others find it attractive. And sometimes you feel a little bit of both, but it creates a reaction. And I want us to think about that this morning, because at this particular moment in Acts, it's being widely accepted. A matter of days before, it was not And as you begin reading the story further on through Acts, even in Jerusalem, things went badly wrong within a few short chapters. So I want us to think about the impact of the gospel and our calling as Christians within that. I want to talk firstly about the negative. The gospel is is repulsive to some people. And you may be one of those people, and I want to speak honestly to you about this. I think it would be... Let's just speak, shall we, about this reality. The real story of the New Testament is that Christ is frequently regarded as a controversialist who does not gain favor with many of his hearers. It's not not really possible to explain why he was killed unless you understand that. So you may think that your repulsion to Jesus or the message is a unique thing or a modern thing. Of course it isn't. There's nothing older than that reaction. It's been the same through the running ages. And of course, you look at the end of his life and ministry, and I think just taking it at face value, I think you'd have to say that Jesus was not particularly successful. Many of the people who at some point thought he was appealing and attractive and followed him had abandoned him, and all that was left was a few, a remnant, a faithful few. Now Paul says, 
in 2 Corinthians. He says the reason is that the fragrance of Christ is, for some, a fragrance from death to death. Some years back when I was a boy, my dad bought, um, he decided to take us fishing on holiday. And he bought a bunch of worms from the fishing tackle shop and put them in his tackle box. And then left them for a few days. (laughs) And as we woke up one morning, this aroma was filling the entire house. And you, you know, you sort of, you know, like that warmer, colder thing, you gradually hone in on where the smell is coming from. And of course, it was Dad's job to open the box and find in it that all the live worms had perished, of course, and were rotting. And the rot was, was filling the, the house, the fragrance of death. Oh, any, you know, the fragrance of death is not an appealing fragrance. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a disgusting smell. And of course, what Paul's saying is that when we preach the gospel, for some people, it's like that. What they smell is rottenness and revolting stench of death. All they hear is death. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? You think, we're used to painting Christianity as positively as we can. The reality is there's, a, there's an aroma, you can't help it. In fact, sometimes that reaction people have to the message of Christianity isn't necessarily even a rational one. It's an intuitive one. It's an instinctive one. It's a visceral one. It's a gut-level one. And sometimes you can't always explain why people, whether individuals or sometimes a mob mentality develops in opposition to Christianity. We saw it in Acts. We see it on occasions when Paul's preaching and one Saturday he'll preach and people are okay. Yeah, this is interesting. He goes back the next week and they've all decided they hate him and what he stands for and decide to, to hurt him if they can. And you think there's this mob mentality, there's this visceral repulsion to the message of Jesus. Now this is something you have to be aware of. Paul teaches it, it's clear in the book of Acts. And I want us to think about that. If you're not a Christian, let me speak to you for a few moments. Every feature of the gospel message is offensive. Every single feature. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the belief that we preach, that you were created by a God who loves you, and that you are not in relationship with him if you don't know him, but that he has given you a provision of his son, Jesus, who came into the earth to take your sin upon himself when he died on the cross, that the anger of God against sin would be assuaged, that he pour out his anger on his own son, Jesus Christ, so that you could have forgiveness that you did not deserve and life, eternal life with God. That's it in a, in a nutshell. And the reality is that every single feature of that message is offensive. Think about what it says about God. It says that God is not the benevolent Santa Claus grandfather that are in the sky, like many people have thought of him, but that he is a God of judgment. That in fact, there are things he hates, things that he is angry against, and that that, is, that, that, that comes to a focus in the reality of judgment. We live in a world of, of acceptance, and judgment is a tricky question, isn't it? Of course, there is judgment. There's mob judgment. We see it with things like the Me Too campaign, and there's often a hypocritical way in which we understand judgment. But judgment in and of itself is not an attractive thing. It's an offensive feature of the gospel. 
Then think about what it says about you as an individual. All of us, actually. We live in a world where we've been taught that we are, we are special, we're like snowflakes, and that the one thing we need above all is to, is to have an extraordinary sense of self-esteem, that, that we need to be built up and not judged for who we are, but rather accepted for who we are in every feature of our personality and character and, and, and physicality, everything. And in, the, in, in contrast to that, while the Bible says that you are loved, it also says that basically at the core of your being, you're rebellious. That you know that there are things that displease the God who made you. You know it internally. You know it in the core of your heart. The Bible says that the law is written on your heart. Your conscience speaks to you. And that despite knowing what is right, you do the wrong thing. And this is what the scriptures describe as sin. Now that's incredibly offensive. Even I find it offensive. In the sense that I remember, he wasn't a particularly attractive um, sort of character, but there was a man who used to preach on Oxford Street, a scouser, who used to stand there with his megaphone saying, you remember him, don't you, Indy? You're either a sinner or a winner. And uh, he actually got an asbo because it, his, the way he, I mean, he, he spoke to me once and you know, he was just a horrific man. But, but, but you know, when, it's, when you hear Sometimes the reality of sin and being confronted with it, there's something very offensive about that. Think about what the, the Bible says about, about Jesus. It says, you know, I don't think there's, there's much that could be more against the spirit of the age today than the claim that Jesus is the only way to God. And Jesus himself says it on multiple occasions. We call it the exclusivity of the Christian faith. It says there are no other options. It's Jesus or nothing. That's deeply offensive. Think about what the Bible says about the future. It says that you are an eternal being and that you have an eternal destiny and that there is a binary aspect to it. You are either going to one place or another place. And, you know, in a day and age where even atheists, you know, generally talk in sort of, euphemisms about death of going to a better place. Nothing is more offensive, is it, than to say, no, there's actually a worse place and some people are going there. Think about what the Bible says about goodness, about the righteous life, that there are behaviors and patterns of life and thought that are offensive to God that we must change, that we must conform to him rather than him conforming to our society's notions at this present cultural moment of what is right and wrong. Now, there's no way I can varnish this. No way I can varnish this. Everything that we believe has the potential to smell like death to you. Rotten flesh. To smell really repulsive. And I want to acknowledge that because, that, you know, for one thing, I think how you react, you've got to bear this in mind, how you react to what I've said does not determine whether it's true or not. Yeah. It's very important to, to note that. Because there are many things which can be true, but which people find offensive or wrong in any given moment. And we should be suspicious of our instincts, I think. Our instincts are not particularly reliable. They're they're fashioned by the world in which we grow up in. There's a writer, Jonathan Haidt, who is not a Christian, um, and he's a a very famous now psychologist in America, and he wrote a wonderful book, The Righteous Mind. And he's describing why the world is so polarized, why we have things that we cannot agree upon. 
And he says that basically, if you look at the way the human heart works, the way the human mind works, we think we're rational beings who assess everything coldly through a grid of logic. He says, no, we're nothing of the kind. Psychology is showing us that we're much more like, you think about a rider sat on an elephant. You think you're the rider in control. The elephant's in control. And he says, most of your reactions to things are, are not through your brain. They're just instinctive. And it's such an important insight because, you know, you might find the gospel offensive, but you maybe don't even know why. You haven't really analyzed why you've reacted that way. And it may not indicate anything about the truthfulness of what we teach. It may just be that you've been culturally conditioned to find the the gospel offensive. It's very important to notice that. It's also helpful, by the way, just to see that you're not alone. A lot of people find it offensive both now, all across the world, and through history. So you're in... You're in a rather large club. That's, that's okay to realize. You know, you, I think otherwise you can tend to a kind of arrogance that thinks, oh, I can see better than you. And of course, it isn't that. It's just, a, you know, it's just, we're just wired. You know, this is who we are. Now, let me just talk about this to, a, to those of you who are Christian for a moment. It's equally important to see the offense of the gospel if you're a Christian. Why? I think for this reason above all, I think when I look at, Christians in the world in which we live, this particular context, this particular moment in history, in this part of the world, I think the one thing we lack above all, when compared with Christians globally and Christians through history, is we lack courage. I think it's quite evident in the way that we speak about our faith in the public sphere, whether just individually or as Christians en masse. And you ask the question, why is it that we lack courage today? I think perhaps one reason is that we have a more acute awareness than ever of public opinion. I think it has a lot to do with modern communication, mass media that began with radio and TV and is now moved to the immediacy of the internet, and that public opinion is always in your face. And I think that what it has done is it has intimidated Christians more than ever. Just think about one feature of this reality that the public voice is such a strong voice, is that in our day and age, it's very rare to meet eccentric people because everybody is conforming to a broadly, broadly acceptable version of what is okay to be socialized. And people who do seem eccentric, it's often these days very affected. It's put on, isn't it? It's like, I want you to notice me for how eccentric I am. The true eccentrics seem to be a dying breed, people who really don't care what anyone thinks about them. They're a dying breed because... The kind of mob mentality is such a powerful thing that we're all conformists today, aren't we? And that has affected the church as much as anything. It's not, it affects fashion. It affects, the way you, it affects everything, actually. It affects your opinions. It affects why we can change our opinions en masse about very significant matters culturally very quickly. We're all conformists. You think about how that has bled into the church. What it's done is, well, if, if, if the culture hates the gospel, then the Christians are conforming to the culture rather than vice versa rather than being courageous. I think it helps us to see when, that the gospel has always produced these kinds of reactions. You know, what would Paul be like if he was around today? I think he'd be a good deal more confrontational and offensive than we are. Yeah, not just Paul, but any number of saints you can mention through history. Acts 2 which shows us the gospel being favored, 
is the exception that proves the rule. It means that the reason Luke noted it down was because it was so weird that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved, that there was this incredible growth of the church. It's the exception that proves the rule, the rule being that normally, in normal circumstances, people do not want to know about Christ or what we have to say. Jesus is really clear about this himself. He says in John 16, he says, I've, he says, in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He says elsewhere that a disciple is not above his master. He says effectively, if they've hated me, the master, then they'll definitely hate you as well. It's a feature, isn't it? The gospel is going to offend. So why are we so hesitant, the question is, to be public with our faith? It's a very important question to ask. I think that it can indicate, it can point to a sickness in our spirituality. I'm talking to you as an individual, I'm talking to myself, but I'm also talking to us communally as Christians together. Jesus is really clear on this. He says on the one hand, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of me, the Son of Man, he says. That's what they did to the prophet, he says. It's a good thing when, when people react to you. But then he says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The false prophets told people what they wanted to hear rather than telling them the truth. And Jesus says, listen, if all you do is meet with favorable responses in life, everyone likes you, you never cause offense, he's saying, you have changed your speech. Because if you were speaking the truth like the prophets do rather than the false prophets, then you would not experience that reaction wherever you go. It's very, it's very convicting, isn't it, to think this way. The offensiveness of the gospel is a feature and not a bug, friends. Now, I, I spoke negatively up to now. I want us to think about the positive aspect of this. The gospel is not just repulsive to some, it's also attractive to others. And that's what's happening here in Acts. It's clear when you think about it, for many reasons, that the church of Jesus Christ has grown and spread across the world. And you ask, well, how has that happened? I know that there were exceptions to this, but broadly speaking, through history, the church did not grow through making babies. It wasn't that, you know, there are some faiths in the world today that are only growing through an extreme population growth of those who believe those faiths. But the Christianity has never grown through having lots of babies and raising them up as Christians. Neither has it grown at the edge of the sword. I think, again, there are probably exceptions to that in particular locations where people are being forced to believe. But broadly speaking, and especially in this last century when Christianity has grown the fastest, it has not grown through, through threat or intimidation or coercion. So you ask yourself, well, how, how is it possible that something that is so offensive has grown so rapidly? And the only answer you can, really, you can really conclude with is that there's something deeply attractive about what we believe. Everyone in this room who decided at some point to follow Jesus will have a story that involves an attraction to him. You were drawn to him. And again, 
This has massive explanatory power. I want to speak again to you who are not Christian here. Let me ask you this question. What could possibly cause you to overcome whatever barriers you have and the cost to follow Jesus and believe on his absolute claims about himself? What could persuade you of that reality? And the way the Bible shows us what happens, it says that even against your seemingly better judgment, even against your own desires, you can experience an attraction to Jesus that you cannot fully understand or explain. The theologians call it the irrevocable call of God. C.S. Lewis, the great atheist who became a Christian as a lecturer in Oxford, he describes how he was the most unwilling convert. He came kicking and screaming, looking, darting eyes left and right, looking for a way out until eventually he had to give his life to Jesus. And he said that the experience was like being chased by the hound of heaven. You know, like a bloodhound that gets your scent and doesn't give up until it's got you. He says, that was what it felt like. I was running, I was running, I was running. I was trying to find every rational reason why I could, would not believe in Jesus. And eventually, I ran into a, a dead end and it caught me. He caught me. Jesus puts it like this. He says in, uh, in John 10, he describes how he's the shepherd of the sheep. And he says that some people hear his voice in a, in a unique way. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In other words, you know how sheep, certainly in the ancient world, they knew, they knew the voice of their particular shepherd. So they would follow him and follow him to new pasture. They led in a very personal way. They didn't lead by dogs yapping around, running around. He says, that's how it feels when at some point the Holy Spirit works in your life and you begin to hear Jesus appealing to you and you hear his voice like he's your shepherd. You feel the, the, the pull, like the tractor beam, <laughs> drawing you in against your better judgment, against your will even. At moments, and then he begins to grab hold of every faculty of your of your being. He grabs hold of your mind. To believe in Jesus is not to take a leap into the dark, as Dawkins likes to think, teach that faith is. To believe is the New Testament word for faith actually means to become persuaded of something. Whenever you see Paul engaging with people about the reality of Jesus died and rose, risen from the dead. What he does is he tries to persuade them point by point. He draws them through a case for the Lord Jesus Christ. He engages them in the mind. And sometimes people who've, who've fought and kicked against it become intellectually persuaded this is true. Even those who set about to oppose it. And then he gets hold of your heart. You know, even the, you begin to want things you never realize you wanted. You want to feel forgiven for the first time. You know, we all have a conscience, and our conscience sometimes can keep you awake at night with the thoughts of the things you've done that you can never undo. The thoughts, even from that day, but also from many years in the past. All of us have 
carry the weight of guilt with us and need forgiveness. Sometimes you begin to want forgiveness way more than you disliked Christianity. You need it. You begin to want holiness. You begin to want to be certain of your future that you will, in facing God one day, that you'll be accepted and not rejected. You begin to want it deep in the belly. He gets hold of your mind and your heart, but he also gets hold of your will. You begin, you become to a point, when you're becoming a Christian, you come to a point where you are willing to say, okay, this is going to cost me everything, but I will follow you anyway. At the moment, we're renovating our flat, and it's a deeply disruptive experience. We've had to move out, put all our stuff in storage, and the place looks like an absolute building site. It's disgusting, and you wouldn't live in it, and it's full of dirt and dust, and you think, "This this is too much. But it's like that when you become a Christian. It's like God moves in and, and you, you let him in and he rips up the floorboards. And then he bashes down walls. And stuff happens in your life. You, but you've opened your life up to this. You became willing. At some point you made the decision. You thought whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I'm going to choose you, Jesus, because you're worth it. And he starts deconstructing before he begins constructing. And there's pain to it. Sometimes your friends reject you. Sometimes your family reject you. Sometimes relationships break down. Sometimes you, you lose whatever future you thought you had. Ambitions have to adjust. Job prospects, career often has to change course. The, the change is profound. How could it not be when you're submitting your life to the one who made you? But, you know, you think about the rider and the elephant. Sometimes the elephant just goes that way, and suddenly you find yourself willing. You never understood how it came about, but you're willing now. And then something amazing happens. All the stuff that you thought was offensive about the gospel, you suddenly realize why it's true. You think, well, how how could God be otherwise than a just judge? Because this world is full of evil, and someone's got to deal with it. Otherwise, what do we do with the great tragedies of the last century? Unless there's justice in the end. We must have justice. We must have a God who is a judge. And suddenly what was repulsive becomes an attractive element to Christianity. And then you think about what the Bible says about you. And the world says, you know, you're a victim of your circumstances and you need healing and you need, you need counseling and all the rest of it. The Bible says, no, you're a sinner, but here's the good thing. You can repent of your sin and be forgiven and then it's fixed. And suddenly there's great relief in being able to just acknowledge before God, oh, I'm a sinner. And you can forgive me. That's much easier than going through decades of counseling and therapy. Because you think of yourself as a victim. Far better you think of yourself as a rebel and a sinner who's able to be fixed by God. It becomes an attractive element. It becomes attractive that you think about the future. You think, well, yes, I do want to live forever. And I'd much rather live forever with God. Even, even this aspect of Christianity being exclusive, where he said, listen, Christ is the only way. And of course, there's nothing more controversial than saying that today. Suddenly you think, well, no, that makes sense. He's the only one who gave his life for me. I don't want to follow the founders of any other religion. None of them, none of them laid down their life for me like Jesus did. None of them so selflessly and undeservedly brutally murdered and killed and willingly set his face to the cross like Jesus did. 
And suddenly what was a repulsive element becomes attractive. I don't want anyone else. I want Jesus. I want the God-man. I want the one whose character cannot be questioned, whose glory is even now radiating and pulling me towards him. And you begin to want to live for him. You want to conform your life to him. And friends, this is the attraction of the gospel, which sometimes, against your own better judgment, begins to appeal to you, as it has to so many of us. Now, Christians, let me speak to you also. It's equally important that you grasp this for this reason. You simply do not know when the gospel will become attractive to somebody, and you cannot predict it. You think you know who's going to be open and receptive. You do not. Both the Bible and history tells us that often the very unlikely people are those who accept it. Even the people who hate Jesus are the ones who change their mind. Paul's a great example of that, isn't he? I've, you know, it's so, so interesting talking about your faith with friends, isn't it? Many of you will know that if you're public with your faith, a lot of times people are not interested or they find it mildly offensive or they're kind of awkward around you until they're drunk. suddenly all the social awkwardness around religion this subject you're not allowed to talk about is suddenly swept aside and you suddenly have the best heart to heart with someone they're like I've always respected you tell me more if only you were sober right now can we record this conversation you don't know really what's going on under the surface I think that's what I'm trying to say right? you don't know You cannot predict. It's not our job to judge someone before we told them what we believe and then choose not to tell them. That makes you a hater. It's very clarifying to understand that the gospel has this this polarizing effect because then you understand that your job is not to make Jesus popular, it's to make him known. If you think your job is to make Jesus popular then what it leads to is all kinds of compromise and pragmatism and adjustment and dishonesty and evasiveness around the things that we believe. And I think that's very offensive to God. But if you understand that your job is to make Jesus known, then it is out of your control how people receive and react to him. Our only calling is to, is to speak of him. It's a very clear mission then, isn't it? It's very clarifying. Let me bring this to a close. What is it that brings about the difference between one reaction and another? Between the negative and the positive? The love or the hate? And the only answer that I think makes sense, and which the Bible teaches us, and which is clearly at work here in the story in Acts, is that it is the work of God's Holy Spirit in people who, who turns them from repulsion to attraction. It's true here in Acts 2. The Jerusalem people did not want to know Jesus, and then they did. How do you explain it? The Holy Spirit, the work of God, began in their hearts. It's been true all through the history when you see the work of God's Spirit in revival times. Our our world was very dark in the 1700s. There was widespread drunkenness and debauchery and society was actually crumbling at a very foundational level. There were gin houses on almost every street in London. People were in the grip of alcohol and alcoholism. And into the darkness of what what had happened in in those 1700s, certain preachers began speaking about Jesus and the need to be born again 
the reality that just because you've been going to church on Sunday doesn't make you a Christian. You must know him for yourself. And something switched on. The Holy Spirit began moving, and suddenly thousands were gathering to hear preachers in one, in one moment, in one location, tens of thousands, to hear George Whitfield, John Wesley, preaching about Jesus, and suddenly vast, vast quantities of people overnight with no explanation were turning to believe in Jesus. And this has been repeated through history. People who hate him become attracted to him. And it's always the work of God. It's not us. This is very interesting. What does it mean for you if you're not, if you're not a Christian sat here and you're thinking, well, if it's God's work, then what do I do? You might think, well, I should do nothing. And I think, absolutely not. That's not, that's not the right response. Let me, let me just use an illustration, which I found very helpful, um, from uh, Pastor Timothy Keller from New York. And he, he puts it this way. He says, listen, if you were to draw up a list of the most influential people in history, Jesus would have to make the top ten. He'd probably make the top five, and for many people, the top three, maybe even number one. Even just from a cold academic perspective, you just have to say yes. In terms of brute influence on history, Jesus always makes that list. Then he says, now draw up a list of people who claim to be God. How much crossover is is there between those two lists? Most of the people who claim to be God have been locked up. They've been followed by a few disenfranchised people, nut jobs, who just sort of said, you know, needed to cling on to something. Or they had no followers at all. But he said, there's only one man who's bridged those two lists, who's claimed to, to be God and also influenced history profoundly. That should make you stop and think in and of itself. It's a great claim, isn't it? They said, imagine that you were to receive a letter saying that you were an heir to the throne of England. Now, Looking around this room, for many of you, that would be an unlikely possibility given our racial diversity. But let's just use our imaginations for a second. He says, you'd have to take note. Or he puts it like this. He says, imagine you got a letter from the IRS, or for us, the Inland Revenue, headed paper that says you owe tens of thousands of pounds to the government. So what do you do? You can't ignore it. He says, the greatness of the claim demands a response. Now think about this. When Christians are claiming that there is a man who lived in history, who claimed to be God, and then had an unbelievable impact on the course of human history. The greatness of that claim stands in front of you and you have to respond to it. There is nothing worse than being confronted with this reality about Jesus and being apathetic and indifferent. Some people are. I think it's the worst kind of response. I'd much rather that you get angry, offended, and even feel hate towards what I'm speaking than that you just sort of shrug your shoulders and go, oh, that's interesting. The greatness of the claim demands that you respond to this. You wrestle with it. You engage with it. You figure out whether it's true or not. You have to, right? If there's even a shred of possibility that it's true, then it changes absolutely everything you thought about life, the world, and everything. Have you really thought about it? For those of us who are Christians, understanding that this is the work of God that can turn somebody from hating to loving Jesus, from repulsion to attraction, helps us understand what our priorities are, that they're preparation, prayer, and preaching. Preparation because, listen, the disciples 
had to be ready for when God was going to change hearts. They'd been spending three years with Jesus, preparing to know his teachings and his ways, so that when people joined the church, they could embed the life of God into the, into the life of the church. And I ask you, you know, think about your life. Do you, do you aspire to be used by God in the future? In what is surely the greatest possible way that God could use you, which is to see people brought to know Christ. Then what, what better thing could you do with your time in these moments of your life than to be preparing, enriching your walk with him, understanding his ways, so that as you, as you meet people, you're able to teach them God's ways. They were preparing. They also prayed. Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Spirit. And so they prayed and prayed and prayed. Because they, they were looking to God to do what they couldn't do, which was change the mind of people. And friends, our call to pray is the highest call that we have. Only God can, can change London. But they're also preaching. Our, our role is to carry the gospel regardless of how people respond. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, the book of Isaiah says. Paul asks, well, how will they hear unless we preach? How will they preach unless we're sent? We need to be sent. We need to communicate. We need to to carry this message. Because the church is fundamentally a missions organization. Will you stand with me? I realize that I've been speaking very directly to some of you who actually are not a Christian. Or maybe you you thought you were a Christian, but as you've considered it, you've realized that perhaps you weren't, or maybe you come in here absolutely knowing very little about Jesus. How, what are you going to do with the reality of this, this man? It's really on you, and I, I would want to encourage you, don't do nothing. If you want to speak with me, I'd love to talk with you. If you want to talk with Jeremy, come to the Salt Course. It'd be, it'd be such a brilliant opportunity. Very small cost, six evenings of your life to discover whether there could be truth to this or not. If you want to become a Christian today, it'd be my privilege to pray with you. For those of us who love Jesus, can we just come to him in prayer now as we respond? I encourage you, raise your hands just as you raise your heart to him. And let's offer ourselves to him. It's the universal expression of offering yourself to God. Say to him, Lord Jesus, we want to repent of our fear. We want to repent of our desire for popularity and our insecurity. We want to ask you to clothe us with power from on high, that your Holy Spirit will come and enable us, that we will be speakers of truth. We ask you, Lord, to clarify what we're here for. And we pray, Lord, that as a church, we will become stronger in you. And that you will add to our numbers day by day those who are being saved. That you would turn around lives. People whose lives are hopeless. People who are caught in addictions and brokenness. Would realize that they can have hope when they come to you. Experience your forgiving power. So we revel in this gospel. Amen. Amen.